Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy K. Part. You are listening to episode 20 titled On Hope and Paradox with Dwayne Tubes. This episode is a beautiful conversation with my friend and fellow griever, Dwayne. He is a Florida based author, artist, poet, all around creative guy. When we first connected, I was invited to be a guest on a podcast he co-hosts called The Unusual Buddha, where we discussed the value of grief literacy and the importance of holding space for others while they heal. I wanted to share a conversation on my show with Dwayne because the depth he reaches for in his pursuit of grief literacy is remarkable. He places so much intention on the process of creating and exploring the unknown, mysterious parts of life, and that is the same curiosity that can aid our healing process through grief. So I'm grateful you're here and just want to encourage you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the heart of an artist on the topic of life and loss. Hi, Dwayne. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Uh, you know what? I'm doing pretty well. I'm so glad you're here with me today on Restorative Grief. It's fun to have you. Thank you. I am glad to finally get to be here. I know we have tried to do it once before and was really bummed that it didn't work out. So I'm really excited to finally be here. I know. Thanks for, you know, being comfortable with the pivot. It always comes up when I do grief work or even experience it in my own life. I'm like, nope, everything has to be canceled right now today. And I so appreciate that you're willing to know that that's important and necessary and not just bail and say, well, that was flaky. I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know. I am certainly one of those people that goes through these cyclical periods creatively, spiritually, emotionally, where, where I certainly cycle through in kind of a seasonal way where I certainly get periods where I have to kind of go into almost a deep wintering kind of state and just shut everything down. That might be because I pretty much live at the brink of burnout at all times. (laughs) So every once in a while I crest fully over and then just, okay, everyone's going to have to deal with me being gone for a little bit and then I'll come back good. I mean, and that's, that's wisdom for sure. That brink of burnout is somewhat where I think we're all kind of living in it right now for sure. But the wisdom to pull back and say, nope, everything's got to come to a halt is, is extremely necessary. Well, I'm glad you're in a good place today. And before we go too far into this, since our audience and the people listening don't know who you are, why don't you tell us just a little bit about who you are and why we're here together today? This, you would think as many podcasts as I've been a part of, I would be better at this part. This is actually the one question I always dread getting asked because I'm a lot of different things at a lot of different times for a lot of different reasons, and I don't do any of them particularly well. If anything, I'm, I'm very good at being not good at a lot of different things. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I like to say that I don't know who or what I am, but I know that I was meant to make things and that shows up differently as it needs to. I think everything that I do is an exercise in me trying to better understand myself, to better come to grips with how I move and find my way in the world and how I present myself to the world, how I navigate it and how I deal with my own inherent eccentricities. So I I write a lot. I blog very frequently. I'd like to think writing is probably my primary medium where I feel I am most myself and I can 
express myself at its best, but I also podcast from time to time. I'd like to think I, I have some artistic tendencies. So I show up in, in some artistic ways. Poetry is very important to me. You know, I dabble in a lot of different things, all in the quest to just try to make the small parts of the world that I can put my hands on better in some way. I know that I have been especially moved by the arts for as long as I can remember, whether it was literature or music or art since very young ages. It made me feel less alone. And so everything I do is trying to pay that back. I think I was given a, a gift anytime I have discovered artists or writers that have given me that sense of being seen and it has made me feel whole in ways that not many other things have. So I make things as a way to just kind of repay that debt to the universe as if it were. <laughs> I love that because that is the true mark of someone who has been moved by creativity is the person who can turn around and be inspired by it and say, I have to do the same thing. I have to create an offering back to the world as well. Because obviously we are talking about grief today and the context of being a creative when you are navigating grief is it's a paradox. It is that double-sided coin. It is the candle burning at both ends. And I think of all the people that I've encountered in this work, you have been one that really exemplifies the ability to walk in the in-between, the expression of how that in-between time and that, those spaces that are less concrete, they're mm. more open to interpretation. I feel like your work really expresses that well. How did you come to a place where you really realized I need to start recognizing the paradox in the artwork I'm experiencing, or even just expressing that in-between space in your work. I think the work itself is what taught it to me. I think it was present in my work before it was present in my conscious understanding of it. I think that's why creative work has been so integral to my own emotional well-being, my own mental health, my own spirituality. It's all been intricately intertwined because I've often found that the work knows more than I do. And uh, I, I believe it was Madeline Lingle who said that when, when the artist is the servant of the work, the work is better than the artist. And I've always really taken that to heart where the work knows more than I do. And I try to be a servant to it. I've, I've never quite understood artists or writers that, that treat their work as if they're children, because my experience has always been the opposite. I have always felt like the work has been apparent to me, and I have been the child of the things that I am quote unquote making. Like I feel like it has cared for me more than I have cared for it. And if everything that I am and everything that I have become and probably everything that I would be has occurred because of the work has been actively making me rather than the reverse. And so I think that paradox comes about just through the act of making within those spaces. It's I make things because I am grappling with trying to understand something about either myself or the world or a combination of the two. I'm trying to grapple with these really dark things or these traumatic things, or I struggle with depression. And so that comes up 
for me a lot. Creativity is pretty pivotal in how I navigate that mental space. And, and so sometimes it's the paradox of making within those spaces that is itself so instructional. Like when you feel so obliterated and desolate and somewhere within there, you can find a way to make something. Even if it's something that is a very sad or depressing piece of writing, something was was made when it didn't have to be. And that itself is an exercise in hope. That itself is an exercise in belief and faith in a way. So there's already that paradox there. I think there's already an implicit hopefulness there, even when it's not directly available at the surface. So I think those things exist in that, that tension of being creative, of being in these awkward spaces of ambiguity and mystery and trying to find what shows up and how it shows up and then trying to reconcile what it is and where it leads. And there's so many intricate things that just, it's so fluid, like you said, and, and malleable. And that paradox is always there because I think you never really get to the end of that mystery. You never really resolve that ambiguity. It just leads to another one and then another one. And then it just cycles back and forth. And it can be this very life-giving experience in the most contradictory ways at times. I hear you saying that there are no answers, despite the fact that art has given you such an outlet to process all of the confusion and looking for meaning in all of the completely crazy things that have happened. And certainly you don't have to go into your story right now, but how would you recommend someone dives in to this incredibly therapeutic method of processing ambiguity and trying to come to terms with paradox or grief in their life because your work imbues hope. Every, I mean, hope is something that I see as a common thread through all of your work that I've taken in myself. And that's something hard fought. It's easy to lose. It's easier to set aside and sacrifice by saying it doesn't matter because I can't change things. So why have hope, right? But despite all of that loss, whatever it is, there's a lot of concrete revelation that has come from, I think, your work for you. How would someone else who's not necessarily predisposed to that level of creativity begin to access that? It doesn't have to be creativity in the way that we traditionally understand it. It's not about paints and sketches. It's not about writing or poetry. Every day is a creative act, right? Every day you are given this blank slate that you sketch who you are that day. And we are a constant shifting sculpture from one day to the other and we get to mold that and make that and some days we make something really beautiful and then some days we don't but the point is that you show up and you do the work regardless and you see it through and then you start over the next day so I, I think it's recognizing that creativity shows up in a lot of different ways I've met some people that are extremely creative when it comes to you know the way they manage administration and excel spreadsheets and uh, you know and some people that are extremely creative in so many different ways. So I think it's recognizing that there's no cookie cutter explanation for what it means to live a creative life. And I think there's no, there's no standardization or no normativity when it comes to understanding yourself as an artist. I don't think that's something that's relegated to a select few. It's something we all have, but I think it comes from leaning into what feels right. I think we all have these 
these little places within ourselves that light up when we're in the proximity to something that matches that specific resonance of our own hearts. And when you find that, a lot of us have a tendency to overthink it because we try to be practical with it. We try to understand its either meaning or its purpose, or, or we don't see it as aligned with who or what we think we are. So we'll push it to the back burner or we won't allow ourselves the opportunity to explore it. Like if you're if you're a bank teller, but suddenly you are just completely called or, or feel this awakening to 17th century French poetry, and it doesn't make any sense to have that in your life, it's easy to brush past that. But that one thing could make you so alive in every other aspect of your life. So I think it's it's that self-awareness to find, find the thing that makes you feel alive, the thing, the thing that sparks something ineffable inside of you, and you grip onto it, and you lean into it and follow it, whether it makes sense or not, because chances are it will bring you to something that will change everything else. I'm so glad you brought up identity because I feel like every single griever I've ever worked with has no idea that part of the pain they're suffering is wrapped up in their loss of identity over what they are grieving because we have a tendency to conflate our identity with what we do or with who we are connected to or what our dreams are and things of that nature. So when I hear you talk about your identity comes out of what brings you to life, how would you encourage the person who suddenly feels like or has the awareness of, oh, I've actually lost a sense of myself. I don't know where to go from here. Because it's really beautiful to say, find the thing that makes you come to life. But you are completely comfortable in that liminal space and the tension of the in-between where there's ambiguity abounding and there's no sense of concrete <laughs> right or wrong, right? Like the gray space is where you flourish, but a lot of people feel like drowning in gray space. How would you encourage someone to safely, and I say safely meaning without risking what little stability they have, right? When you're grieving, everything feels un unsteady. So how would you encourage someone to safely explore well what makes you feel like coming to life especially when you have secondary traumas like loss of interest in life and depression and and whatever else comes along with it how would you encourage them to practically step into a new thing that is such a super super rich question there's so many parts of that that i'm excited <laughs> to, to unpack number one i think the whole concept of identity is such a tenuous subject because we mm -hmm. do attach so much by identity to so many things whether it's a job title whether it's um, a particular role with either in your organization or family unit or or a particular income bracket or all these different things, whether it's skill sets, we attach so much of our identity to it. And in, in each and every case, we are wrong. None of them will ever encapsulate the full richness and the complex texture of, of who we are as people. It's just impossible. There's a, a French philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre who had this idea called bad faith. He said bad faith occurred whenever we thought one of these roles was the fullness of who we are. It was bad faith because we believe this truth. We believe this thing that we think is a truth about us that really isn't. But because in essence, nothing can ever fully capture who or what we are. We are always this blankness. So that in itself is some necessitation for getting comfortable in that grayness, but that's a difficult thing to do. What I could say to someone, when you're in a very, very dark 
place, the beautiful thing about being in such a dark place is it, it does become so easy to see glimmers of light when it's so dark. It's so much easier to see them. And the thing that is most important is having that courage or at least that little bit of wherewithal to follow it, to still find some curiosity. The curiosity is the antidote to despair because despair says that tomorrow will just be a repeat of today. Despair says that things will go on and on as they have been. The curiosity says, what's around the corner? What is this? What is that? The curiosity is a way to look at what's already present in a whole different light or to see little sparks of light that maybe we've glanced over before. I know that's even vague and ambiguous, but I think it varies so much from person to person. It's hard to put that down to something so formulaic, but I think it's finding ways to be curious. And I think the way you do that is read something different, watch something different, listen to something different, try to do something different. We all know there are things that bring us comfort. And sometimes it's just allowing ourselves the time and the space to be comforted by them without needing a reason for them to be comforting or without them having an ulterior motive. And it's being kind of unafraid to lean further into that and finding those spaces. I found for me also what really helps is you, you talk about stability and that's been a very important thing for me because as someone who, who struggles with depression, I cannot rely on my own mental state as any kind of indicator for how to navigate my days. Some days I would be very normal and very fine, and other days I would be plummeting to new all-time lows, and so I cannot base how I function on a daily basis on how I'm dealing. So I find for me, and this may not be the answer for everyone, ritual and routine become very, very important because that is something that's stable and grounded. And I think that's what's beautiful about creative practices for me because then it becomes like the work is just what I do irregardless of how I feel. I sit down every day at the same time and I write. I sit down every day at the same depths and I write whether I feel like it or not whether I feel good or not, whether I'm happy with what happened in that space or not, because it just becomes the scaffolding that upholds my days. It just becomes the structure of how life unfolds for me. And it gives me something I can hold on to when I feel like everything else is shaky. And creating those sure structures makes it even easier to explore curiosity because you have these confines, I don't like that word, but <laughs> you have these, these structures that that allow you that room to play and explore and experiment and whatever that means for you. And then you can just kind of move on throughout your day and you know that you can come back to that. It creates this handrail for your days. That's so powerful because ritual and routine are two things that I often talk with people about when I hear that chaos in their life. I am a person who will establish a routine or a ritual and within a few weeks, blow it up because the stability is almost too stable. It's not creative enough for me, or I get a new idea and think now I can do this thing because I did that thing so consistently for three weeks. But the, you're right. The truth is none of those things is going to be the solution for grief, for loss, for instability. Not one resource is ever going to show up completely or resolve anything for you, but layering them together as a ritual, as something that you look forward to becomes a plumb line as you're trying to figure out 
out, well, wait a minute, something's exploding in my periphery here, but I have a baseline to start with. Okay, now I can go forward and not feel quite so just lost and floaty through all of it. You know, yeah, and I think things like ritual and routine they they really get a bad rap because a lot of people are like, well, that sounds so confining or so constraining. Like I even mistakenly use that word, but still, it seems that way. But it's like it's not. No one's asking you to time scale your entire day or or right. to. It's it's just having. It can be something it's just having this one thing, where yeah. you know maybe it's a particular writer or a particular type of book or a particular kind of show or, or a particular movie, whatever it is that, that does bring you a little bit of spark or a little bit of light. And it's just as simple as creating some space every day to be with that thing. You know, I talk about making time to write at the same time every day without fail, but that actually doesn't mean I'm productive. There are some days where I sit and I don't write one word. I made that space and I sat there. It still stayed a part of my routine. I, I met with that thing. I, I created the opportunity for something to show up. Whether it showed up or not is inconsequential. My job was just to show up and, and do my part. And I think it's the same thing. It's just making that space. I know that for me, other things like I love to read. And I know as long as at some point in that day before I closed my eyes, I sat for 20 or 30 minutes with a book that I'm really enjoying, the whole day will feel like it was a good day. That's just how it is for me. I also know like going for a run at the at the end of the day just somehow sets everything just right. But it's just finding those things that do work. And that takes curiosity. You know, I think not the ham on it, but it's like it's about exploring. Find the things that do work for you. And then you can build these rituals around these things that you are in love and bring them into those things. Just like you said, when you experience great loss, what that is, when you experience grief, it does rupture your identity. But your identity was never stable to begin with. So there's all these points in our life where our identities prove to be unstable and prove to be fluid and malleable. And that's actually such a gift because that means you get to be curious about yourself on a daily basis. So yes, your tastes are going to change. The things that move you will change. Your routines and rituals will change. I think that's the beautiful thing about that kind of practice too, is like allowing yourself to change your rituals, to change those things that structure you because they worked for a time and they may not work for all time and giving yourself the luxury and the ability to move and explore and have that malleability because we are we're always changing our identities are never stable and what better way to explore what better way to be curious than to figure out what is it that lights me up today what is it that will make me feel alive today when you find that there's also these these moments of resonance and connection that come back to it that you would just never anticipate and it doesn't have to be productive like you said which is my favorite thing when you said you know, these rituals might not be something, they might not produce anything. It might just be me sitting there. That resonates so deeply because I feel very strongly that we are addicted to productivity. I certainly know that I am and grief derails, right? Grief derails everything. And we want to be consistently contributing to our lives, to the world around us, to the people that gave to us. We want to contribute back. And I feel like when we are on the precipice of recognizing this ritual is not working, this routine, or I 
I'm waking up and I'm stepping into the same old pain that I've stepped into every morning for however long. When we recognize there's a shift here, as much as I hate change, as much as I want to reject change because death already changed so much for me or loss in some framework, I feel like that is the moment of recognition that we're about to press into a liminal space. And I wanted to read this to you. I have like eight to 10 different books I read in the mornings. My friends were just over and laughed at me because they saw the stack. And like, are you reading all of this at once? I say, no, I sit down and ask which one strikes for the day. (laughs) This one is a Richard Rohr, who I know you love him. And it says, what some call liminal space or threshold space, which in Latin, limen means a threshold, a starting line, or a beginning place, is a very good phrase for those times, events, and places that open us up to the sacred. I feel very strongly that when we are wrestling with grief and wrestling with how it changes our ability to access curiosity, because we want solid answers. We don't want fluid answers. Recognizing that opportunity to step into a liminal space is not the answer. Like it's not the period end of sentence, but it is one answer that I feel invites healing to finally begin. And I know that you've had a lot, we've had a lot of conversations previously just about liminality and the way that our lives can be so rearranged in the best of ways when we are willing to let things, to live open-handed, to to just accept, okay, well, I'm in between point A and point B, and I don't know how long this is going to take. And yet, how do you embrace the and yet without completely, you know, derailing on your day-to-day? Because that is such an uncomfortable space to exist in, right? But I feel like you have found a way, whether it is through ritual, but even outside of that, to harness creativity in a way that makes and yet something you experience, but something you also have created invitation for others to experience. I think liminal spaces come to us whether we want them to know. <laughs> so I think that part of it, that's not something we look for. It's something that finds us. Everything is always liminal, always already, and at all time. So it's recognizing that any semblance of stability that we think we have is illusory or temporary. Best. And so we will always be navigating that. And I think to play my broken record again, that's where curiosity just becomes so important because it's realizing that you are in this and yet space, but that is precisely what hope is. That is precisely why it's a cousin to curiosity. That's why it's so closely linked to joy and faith and things like that because they're all these constant and incessant ebbing motions within an and yet. It's recognizing that this is uncomfortable and yet there's something else there's something more it's this has not gone the way i hoped it was but and yet i didn't see it coming it's recognizing that there is always something just beyond what we can see and we get senses of it and we can feel it coming and we never know what it is there are these moments of pitch blackness that come out of nowhere and just as likely as that is there are also these moments of wondrous light-soaked joy 
that come out of nowhere as well. And it's being able to live in the tension of the in-between because that's just what life is. It is the tension of being in between all those things and being at the cusp of something that's always cresting towards change and trying your best to be curious about what it is and to hope that there is some hope in it and to recognize that hope is not something that you can have or hold. It's something that you make and it's something that's best when it's given away. I want to ask you one last question. What of all the books you've read in the last like two years, like pick one, it doesn't have to be the best. What approachable content would you recommend for someone who is listening and is thinking, okay, and yet I can step forward into that, but where do I begin? What, what resource or what inspirational book have you read that would be a good, here's something I'm going to introduce to my new ritual. I'm going to have to go with with two books. Okay. Acceptable. Um, We'll allow two. (laughs) (laughs) For for similar reasons, although those slightly different, probably one of the best books I read this year is a book called Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strait. The book is a collection of the columns that she wrote. She she used to answer, I think she still does the column. Uh, it's called Dear Sugar. And so people would write with these questions and she would just write these just most beautiful, heartbreaking, tender, but radically real responses and just the most wonderful prose and every question that she has responded to somehow found a resonance with me and I can't help but think that that's something that is that would be a commonality. There's questions about marriages that are on the verge of falling apart, people that have lost loved ones, fathers who have lost sons at too young of an age, relationships that are in liminality, lives that are in liminality, graduating from all these different, if anything, it is an exploration of people at their limits, people at their and yet spaces. The whole book is that. And what you'll find answer after answer is not hard and fast answers are not concrete resolutions, but just the ear of a tender hearted friend that is willing to sit in the dark with them and hold their hand and a candle until the dawn comes. I think that's the most beautiful thing that any of us can receive and probably the most beautiful thing any of us can give. Uh, and I think that book is a wonderful exploration of that. And I highly recommend it. I think I've recommended it probably all throughout this year. And the other book is just very, very special to me. And I cannot guarantee it will appeal to all audiences. But a few months back, I became a part of what you could say is a two-person book club. We were reading John Green's latest book called The Anthropocene Reviewed. And it is a collection of essays reviewing the various facets of our human-centered world on a five-star scale so it's everything from you know his review of sunsets to sycamore trees to hot dog eating contests and no matter what the topic he expresses it with such a profound earnestness and a what i can only call a joyful melancholy which i think itself is that kind of paradoxical situation we all find ourselves in somewhere between sadness and joy at all times finding these places of gray dark where things are hard and everything hurts and bristles but there's always an and yet and i think what john green is 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 impeccable at in that book is exploring all the and yet's in all these situations that seem bleak and finding a way that 
makes bleak even seem bright when we are in the light of each other. And I think that only came to light so much more the fact that I was able to share that with someone so special. Yes. We we read chapter together and then wrote these long kind of our own essay responses to the chapter and then back and forth. And it just explored all these themes so mm-hmm. deeply. It was just a wonderful experience, made the book that much more wonderful. I think all those things and ideas are available in, in that in that book to both are very accessible as far as their readability and i think both are great explorations of being what it means to be curious looking at these things in our daily lives in both in both texts really these things that every one of us comes up against or sees and doesn't recognize or sees but didn't think anyone else felt and finding that we're not alone oh those sound fantastic and i wrote them both down so that i can also i've been wanting to read that john green book for a while i just haven't the stack is 30 books deep as of four minutes ago. Now it's 32. Dwayne, where can the listeners find you if they want to interact or if they are like, that sounds like a great idea for a book club. Tell me how to start it. Or they just want to see some of your work and read your blog. Where can they find you? I am not that hard to find. I would like to think number one, you can find, you can check out my website. It's just www.dwaynetoops.com. D-U-A-N-E-T-O-O-P-S.com. I try to post at least the blog there. I try my best to do one a week. I help out on a few other podcasts from time to time. I, I team up with my friend Jim Martin from the Unusual Buddha. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll do some guest spots for the Tattooed Buddha. I'll also do some book reviews for them from time to time. And then all the usual suspects, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I love all of those for all different reasons. I try my best to kind of put something some piece of handmade hope out through every one of those outlets on a daily basis as as much as possible. Well, thank you again for taking time. I love this conversation and I think you are the right person to have carried it out. So thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I'm very grateful that I got the opportunity to be here. Thank you for listening to episode 20 of Restorative Grief. My conversation with Dwayne left me full of unanswerable questions and new paths to explore in my healing work. And to be honest, that's just how I like it. I remember feeling so honored and grateful for the chance to hear his process and his perspectives because artists have a way of opening the soul differently. So I hope you found at least one new way to look at your own story with curiosity and hope through our conversation. You can find more of Dwayne's work online at DwayneTubes.com or follow him on Instagram and Twitter at DwayneTubes and the links are in my show notes. Remember, the only way to heal through grief is to start grieving. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week.